0: Support for the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival comes from San Pellegrino, celebrating 100 years of being tastefully Italian. Find out more at sanpellegrino.com. Hello, I'm Pat Nurse, and welcome to Melbourne Food and Wine. Today we hear from Peter Gilmore. Since he took over the kitchen at Quay in Sydney in 2001, Peter has become recognised as one of Australia's most celebrated chefs. His style is as distinctive as it is delicious, and his chief source of inspiration, he says, is nature. In a session we recorded live at the Theatre of Ideas, brought to you by the New York Times, as part of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, presented by the Bank of Melbourne, Pete talked to his friend and fellow restaurateur, Pulissa Anderson, about his love of the garden. To open the session, Pulissa asked Peter what the inspiration was behind his new book, From the Earth, The World's Great, Rare and Almost Forgotten Vegetables.
1: Well, it really comes basically from my love of gardening and I've been gardening for over 10 years now at a home. I sort of call my little patch at home my test garden, and I grow all sorts of varieties and it sort of happened um, probably about 12 years ago I planted my first little herb garden in my backyard and I sort of got addicted to the idea of the whole life cycle of plants and growing vegetables and uh, I started really slowly and then I realised just how much stuff was out there that we never see in the shops and we never see in the supermarkets and just you know being a chef wanting to work with a, a large pallet of food and not be limited by, you know, being told there's, okay, there's one type of carrot happens to be orange, you know. But there's as I soon discovered, you know, carrots are only orange because the Dutch bred them to be orange. Originally they were sort of purple and white and all these great colours, red carrots, and they all exist. And so I, I wanted to start growing them, taste them, work out what I could do with them as a chef, and uh, I guess that's where the, the initial spark happened.
2: And I think when you start growing your own, you start to play with different stages of maturation of the plant as well, don't you? And almost like daily I go out there and test things out on our farm and it tastes different. And then you actually then get to explore the whole plant, not just the root and, and you see how many different varieties actually have so many different flavors.
1: It's very true. I mean, you know, I think early on I started to discover things like the seed pods and the flowers and um, the plants at different stages of growth, like you say, it could be really interesting as a seedling or let it go and let it mature, let it fruit. And then maybe the seeds of that fruit are really interesting, like in the case of the Lady Godiva, oh, uh, the, the, s- the seeds inside yeah. the pumpkins. Yeah, so it's a pretty endless, actually.
2: It really is. Just when you think... This goes back to the question I once asked Pete. Um, so we started our farm three years ago and we grow a lot of the vegetables for Pete. I said to Pete, what's it like when you develop an idea and you think no one else is doing it, but then the next year you see people start to grow what you're growing or people putting on the menus what you've used the previous year and how you kind of spark off a trend? And what did you say to me, Pete? Do you remember?
1: Oh, I just, I just think you know that it's good to be first to do something, and uh, and I think you know if if that keeps you going from a creative point of view, you just have to come up with the next thing. You know, you've always got to have the next thing that you want to explore, and you know, luckily in the world of vegetables, it's. Pretty massive. So yeah, even though you might inadvertently start a bit of a trend or you know, I think these days with Instagram and all the social media, you know, I think a lot of people follow each other and they sort of think, well, oh well, if he's into that Japanese term, that must be pretty good. So I'm gonna plant that next year. And (laughs) I mean that's cool. That's a cool thing. That that's not a bad thing because that, that spreads the word and gets people interested. I know when we first started growing stuff. You know, for key, we started growing stuff at least 11 years ago now. I had growers grow things for me, and we were putting things into the restaurant, like, you know, just things that seem quite commonplace today, like, you know, the red meat radishes, for example. And chefs were coming in and losing their shit over it. It's just (laughs) like wow, where did you get this from? And Who's supplying you, that from, you know? <laughs> you
2: started to see radishes appear all over oh, the venues. Oh, for sure, because, our,
1: our, you know, our chefs will then put pressure on their gardeners and growers, you know, or suppliers. Look, I, I want to get these radishes, or, you know, and why can't we get them, you know? And it's it can
2: only be a good thing to increase diversity in the plant That's kingdom. exactly right. Yeah, and, you know, now seeing farmers markets with the varieties that, it makes shopping at supermarkets extremely boring, I think. <laughs> but, you know, you know when you're into a good thing when yeah. the supermarkets start also, you know, Well, look, things. that's
1: really true, you know, and there is a uh, trickle-down yes, trickle yeah. effect, you know, that happens, and I remember a few years ago walking into Woolworths and seeing purple carrots on the shelves, and it's like, wow. Did you say,
2: like, a yes moment? <laughs> I did that
1: It was a little bit like that, I must say, because, you know, before then that stuff wasn't available, and you've only got to go back another, you know, sort of, 20 years in Australia where our produce was really, really boring. Like, you know, there was an iceberg lettuce and that was it. There was a potato. Uh, actually, there was two, dirty potatoes and <laughs> washed potatoes. And, they, you know, and the reality is there there is at least three or four thousand varieties of potatoes in Peru. So, I mean, that's the thing that gets you, you know. And, and when you, you see, like, a potato that happens to be Pink flesh, and uh, or a really small, tiny potato that's just packed with flavour. You know, that's what is exciting from a chef's point of view.
2: So here on the screen, we've got the the pinstripe fagiata peanut. How did you find
1: that? I look on seed websites uh, a little that's bit. That's our porn. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually going to say, <laughs> but, you know, it's probably not that politically correct, but vegetable porn, um, you know, but it is um, it, it is really fascinating. Like, you know, there is a whole network out there of incredible heirloom growers and seed collectors and seed savers and, you know, and one, one thing that really, really surprised me when I started researching was that, you know, you think of uh, the US as being this – Big sort of country that's only interested in monocultural farming and fast food and, you know, and consumerism. But there's a whole subculture there that's Massive, especially in California, you know, of heirloom growers, of organic growers, of sustainable growers. And it it dwarfs our industry, really, because of the population in America. Definitely.
2: There's more room for niche growers. And, you know, they're doing really interesting things because they, they supply the smaller restaurants too, which, you know, I think people get into growing here and it's a hard game. It's a hard game. But when we, you know, when we have... People like you to go for it, certainly makes it really inspirational.
1: The first couple I worked with 10 or 12 years ago and there was this crazy uh, English guy called Richard Cleaner yeah. who had Berrydale Farm and he, I for a couple of years before that once I started growing stuff at home I, I searched for farmers But like the reverse of that is I was searching for farmers to grow things and you know I went out with my vegetable provider Matt Brown and met a couple of farmers in the Hawkesbury region conventional farmers and I asked them to do you know quite simple things really these days like can you grow coloured carrots or you know, interesting French breakfast radishes or... And the other thing was, like, I really wanted to grow... I wanted to get flowers, like bean flowers and pea flowers because they're really tasty and they're really beautiful. And, you know, his response to me, which I've told the story a few times, was... Look, buddy, carrots are orange. (laughs) And um, when I plant peas, I'm going to grow a whole field of them. And when they're ready, I'll send in my army and they'll pick them and I'll send them to market. I'm not going out every day to pick flowers for you. (laughs) And it was like, okay. But eventually I found someone. I found a guy who was growing organic berries up in the Blue Mountains who had a great big paddock and he needed to supplement his income and he started growing all this unusual stuff for me. And he became obsessed by it as well. And now I I work with uh, three or four growers, including Pallissa, who... Who, who grow amazing stuff for the restaurants. And, and I, you know, every year I'll sit down with them and say, look, this is what I'm interested in this year. This is what I, – I tested this last year in my garden. Most of it I try and test in my garden. Sometimes we take a punt on things and grow it out like we discovered with those,
2: yeah. Um, so, those
1: melons. <laughs> yeah, we
2: can talk a little bit about that. So while we're there, there are so many amazing um, successes, there have been a few – not so great, you know, yeah. not failures because it's always learning experience. Yeah, yeah. But when you put in like an acre of it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Mind <laughs> you, you did go a little bit over the top with those ballads. <laughs> <villains. Look, Pete, laughs>
2: you know, you told me later, give it divas, I put in like an acre, only produced like five pumpkins <laughs> a week. So. Oh,
1: that, that's true.
2: <laughs> but what I wanted to say was I've been to Key numerous times over the years starting from I think when you first started as chef there and then I had my 30th there, and I recently had my 36th there. But just uh, every time I go, I feel like there's some small nuance changes. This menu is completely new. But when I taste the food, because I know, that I guess, the, the heritage of the vegetables and the stories behind them, I really do feel like we're reaching into the past using modernist techniques
1: Look, you know, I think the big interest I have in uh, heirloom varieties is that these varieties are actually developed over generations of farmers and they're naturally selected, through, sometimes through natural crosses or sometimes farmers will cross. I mean, when you think about it, like like the cabbage family, for example, it started off as one wild... Mediterranean wild cabbage that probably wasn't that tasty and over the centuries people have developed cauliflowers, broccoli, brussels sprouts, hundreds of different types of cabbages purple cabbages, pointy cabbages, all, all of that, that you know, heirloom varieties of cauliflower, all that was derived from this original wild plant. So it's, it's man's intervention with nature, observation of nature, observing um, often things that are just freaky occurrences, saving those seeds mm. and developing it. And uh, and that sort of heritage, is it's so important that we actually hold on to these seeds, use them, because if we don't, all of that knowledge, all of that work that's been done can be lost. If you don't replant those seeds every couple of years and actually grow them and use those vegetables, they're gone forever. Mm.
2: And what I find also is how it just completely adapts to landscape, different landscape. So one thing can taste, like as we talk about yeah, terroir with wine, I definitely think there is a terroir with fruit and vegetables.
1: Yeah, I agree. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, I've got a, a couple that grow up in the Blue Mountains, so it's a much colder climate. You know, um, they are really good at growing some things like the brassicas and, um, you know, that really rely on a frost to actually make the vegetable sweeter. Depending on your soil type and the nutrients of plants getting can, can really affect um, the flavour. And, and uh, yeah, it's such a, a wide, interesting field. And I guess with my book, what I really wanted to do with uh, From the Earth was just highlight some of those incredible stories and some of that heritage and highlight the vegetables themselves so that people get interested in them and they survive. And Do
2: you want, you want to talk a little bit about a couple of them that um, have really kind of made a mark on you?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, there's 48 vegetables in the book and it was really hard to narrow it down to that many. And from a starting point... Um, Look, probably about 80% of them I grew myself. And, um, you know, so I found stuff that I thought was actually really interesting from all sorts of points of view, flavour, texture, uniqueness, um, how it looked, how it grew. So I narrowed it down in that way. And then with my wife, Kaf, um Caff did a lot of the research. So, so when I decided on a vegetable I wanted to feature in the book, something like the uh, getty uh squash, which is this huge, beautiful orange squash. I'm not sure if there's a picture of it but the story that went with that was so fascinating once we started doing the research. So CAF looked up lots of articles on the internet and we looked through vegetable books and, and all sorts of things to get the information and then I would go through it, analyse it, work out what it was that I found interesting about that research and what was interesting to write down and sort of narrow it down into a few paragraphs. But some of the stories were just incredibly fascinating but I guess one of the more interesting stories with this squash um, Getty Olsman squash was actually the story that went with it and it sort of became within the vegetable world which is probably you know a bit nerdy but they started talking about it as being uh, the seeds were found in an ancient ball of clay in America on an Indian reservation And it's true that some ancient seeds have been found. Like there's there's caves in Arizona where they've found bean seeds that have been put into a clay vessel that's been sealed and they're still viable after, you know, 100 years. Um, Anyway, this story went on that these seeds were found um, by this... uh, particular uh, gentleman and he grew them out and discovered, rediscovered this amazing squash. But the truth of the story, once I, I dug a little bit further, was that it was actually being grown on an Indian reservation by two ladies who had preserved it through all the generations and they were the only two people growing this and he was gifted these seeds, grew the squash Found that it was amazing and made up a whole backstory to make it really popular. Of course, it is. did. So, you know, but but what was more unique was that this squash has been grown continuously for maybe two thousand years, and it got down to two ladies on an Indian reservation in America who preserved the traditions of growing this particular squash. Otherwise, that squash would have been lost forever, and it was the tastiest, most beautiful, large, incredible-looking squash. And uh, and now you know those that plant and that tradition is being preserved because you can buy them through specialist seed places in the States and people can grow them and there's heaps of people that grow incredible um, personal heirloom gardens that save seeds and there's this whole network that's really interesting and, and when chefs get a hold of something and popularise something then it has a new life and people get excited about it Like, you know, in Italy, for example, there's the Rojiva uh, pea, which uh, also features in the book. And there's this little wild pea that almost became extinct. Um, And one region of Italy grew it, and that was only in that region. And then over the last 50 or 60 years, it's fallen out of favour because there's more profitable crops to grow Et cetera, etc. Cetera. And literally there was a few wild plants found um, growing along some of the rivers in this region. and one particular guy decided to save this and he started growing it and convinced a couple of farmers to grow these peas. Um, And then the slow food movement in Italy got hold of it and put it into the food arc, and then it became popular, and then it was sold in gourmet stores, and it started to revive this pea. that also could have been lost, and it's the most beautiful, nutty, gorgeous tasting thing. And in Italy, they take the peas, the dried peas, grind them up and they make a sort of planter out of it. And it's, it's really wonderful. So I, I grew them a couple of years ago and saved a few seeds, tested it, made sure I had an interesting dish for it and ended up in the book. And it will probably be on the menu um, in winter this year because is gonna grow it on a much bigger scale for me. San Pellegrino is honoured to
0: be part of fine dining experiences since 1899. Quench your thirst with one of their new San Pellegrino Plus Tea organic sparkling drinks, available in peach and lemon. Find out more at sanpelegrinofruitbeverages.com. San Pellegrino, a supporter of Melbourne Food and Wine Festival.
2: Talking about the way you procure your ingredients to now... Like, how different is it and how has that affected your menu?
1: Yeah. Well, look, I think, um, you know, say 15 years ago before I started growing things, I used to just ring up my fruit and veg guy and order stuff that was in the marketplace, which is fine, but it's more limiting. And I I realised that what I actually had to do was be proactive and go and contact farmers and ask them to grow things for me if I wanted to get this stuff. So that's what I did. And, you know, I'm not the first chef in Australia to do that, but I think it did create a bit of a movement and it got a lot of other chefs on the same sort of plane of, okay, well, let's not just be reliant upon what the farmers think we want them to grow for us or what, you know, is... Because
2: often farmers actually really don't have an idea.
1: Yeah. Or,
2: Or if they're growing it, they don't know how to sell it.
1: Yeah, and most Southeast of the time Tasmanian, they're, gro- they're uh, growing it for the big supermarket chains and mm-hmm. things like that. So they're growing things that are shelf-stable and travel well and they're not necessarily growing the best variety for flavour. So to actually go and approach smaller scale farms to grow things for you, it takes a lot of commitment because you've got to commit to things, you've got to agree to buy a certain amount of stuff. And they've got to also uh, be willing to succession plant so you actually have it on the menu for a while. And it is, it's not an easy road because you don't always get what you want.
2: And farmers are a different breed to, I think, a lot of people who go to restaurants because often they don't go to restaurants because they mm. like to eat their own food. So
1: I think the thing is, though, that it's actually a really – when it works, it's a great symbolic relationship between the farmer and the chef because it also cuts out the middleman and it's a more direct thing so the farmers you know can actually get a better price for their produce like I pay well above what I could buy a similar-ish product for in the market but it's because I want that particular bean and I don't want just the normal beans that are you know available so I might pay twice as much for them but then I've got the ability to the sort of restaurant that I run people come they expect you know, to see something they haven't seen before. So it really works. But being in fine dining, I think I've got the budget to spend on more exotic produce. But you can do it on a different scale too with... A lot of farmers, like my guys up in the Blue Mountains Epicurean Harvest, they, they'll grow a lot of stuff specifically for me, but they'll also grow a lot of stuff that they then go out to other restaurants and say, hey, we've got this available this week, we've got that. And if you're a, a sort of restaurant that can sort of be flexible with your menu, you can you can actually buy stuff in season when it's abundant for a good price, and that can work for the farmer and, and the restaurateur. I mean, I think my case is quite specific because I'm actually wanting very bespoke items for a specific purpose. But there's lots of ways to tackle that farmer-chef relationship.
2: And also the waste question. When you say, I give you the Lady Godiva squashes and you only use the seeds,
1: yep. sure. what
2: happens to the rest?
1: Staff. I've got over 50 staff <laughs> that love those pumpkins.
2: What do you do with them? <laughs>
1: no, they get really sick of it, actually. No, but we, um, to be honest, we don't really waste anything in our kitchens because, you know, at, at Key, we actually employ... 60 people and at Benelon we employ close to 80 people so when you have that much staff to do a staff meal for it's very easy to turn a lot of, you know, if I want something specific like those seeds, I might add that those pumpkins are grown for their seeds, uh, even in uh, Austria where they grow them, they grow them as pepitas. they grow the seeds to make oil, to make pumpkin seed oil that's what they're bred for, the flesh is actually not that tasty. Yeah, uh, so I
2: just have like, god damn yeah.
1: But but, but, again? but we will Do use it, it. we'll stir fry it and use it in the staff meal or, you know, and, and I think, you know, in other ways, um, you know, certainly on a farm situation, there's, there's no way you can always compost stuff and, and re-enrich the soil.
2: So does our audience have any questions for Pete? Yeah. When you start with an idea for an ingredient or, say, a vegetable or something we've just seen, what's your sort of time frame from seed to plate and I, I, don't, yeah. I know it's not set in stone but Absolutely. and how do you navigate
0: a setback?
1: Yeah that, that's a really great question. Um, I would think that, that generally the story goes that I'll see the seed or the vegetable in a catalogue, a seed catalogue or online and there's a lot of great companies. I mean Bakers Creek Seeds in, in um, Missouri in the States are great. Uh, there's a company called Seedaholic in Ireland that I buy a lot of seeds from, but there's numerous places. And, um, and Anyway, I would buy a pack of the seeds. I would uh, get them. I would grow them in my test garden. So that might, you know, with the seasons, I might grow it for summer. I might grow a particular type of tomato, for example, and taste it analyse it, make sure it looks great or it's really interesting. There was actually a tomato on the screen at some stage through the Black thing. Black galaxy. Black Galaxy that Pallissa grew for me this year. I grew them the year before and the flavor's fantastic and I thought, yep, these are great. I want to use these and then I'll go to one of my farmers and say, can you grow these on a bigger scale? hey, Melissa, I want to put them on this dish. Some of the time I don't have a specific dish in mind. I just know I'd like to use that product because it's tasty. And other times the product and the idea comes. uh, But often I'll have to wait a whole season for that to be available. And I'll say, you know, Melissa, can you grow about 450 of these tomatoes every week for me? And she'll go what? <laughs> and, I'll go, oh, okay. and she'll fill up half a greenhouse with them, and and then you know. But it's not an exact science because some weeks in the beginning, when they first start, I'm getting fifty a week, and then all of a sudden, plus has got a thousand a week, you know. And it's like, well, what can <laughs> I do like, with them? All
2: the tomatoes.
1: Luckily, I've you know, I've got Ben along. I can put them on a different dish. So, but you know, and then um, the creative process around creating a dish often does start with that process. It, it starts with a, a really interesting squash or a really interesting carrot or whatever and then I'll go well where does that leading me where, where does that product want to take me on what journey to what essence or do I want to preserve what will go with it and then that experimentation process is often really interesting when it starts with an ingredient that you want to make the star of a dish or feature in a dish and you just have to work out how to do that and often you start off with one idea and by the time you've finished experimenting it, it comes out in a different way than you expected, and and that's really interesting and fascinating, I think. Every now and then you get an idea that pops into your head, like it's a technique or a cooking idea you want to explore, and it's almost fully formed, and it works, And that, but that's the rarity, and most of the time it's a couple of months of playing around and working out, and sometimes it just doesn't work, and you, you end up in a dead end, and it's like, I love this ingredient, but I can't make it work on a dish mm. that fits the style of food that I want to do in the restaurant. And sometimes it's not until a year later that the other piece of the puzzle comes in and it's like, oh, I could use it there, and then that's then great. But it's hard because there's a lot of pre-planning in the vegetable world because it is seasonally, you know. So I'm thinking about winter ideas in summer because we've got to plant those winter things in, you know, as, as it comes into sort of autumn. So we're planting winter stuff right now even though it's still quite warm. So those ideas are starting to form. But Tell them
2: about the corn, Pete, the black corn where you, you ground from the seed packet.
1: Yeah, sure. So I found this um, incredible black corn when I was travelling through the States, again at Bakers Creek Seeds, and this corn is – Jet black. It's unbelievably beautiful. You saw a picture, yeah. The black coolie corn. Yeah, and it's it's from Peru, and uh, in Peru they actually make a drink out of it. They juice the fresh corn and ha- and have this purple drink, and I just thought it, uh, it looked fascinating. So I grew it last year in my garden, and found that when I Actually, I didn't love it as a fresh corn, but when I dried it, I ground it and turned it into a planter and I made the most amazing, amazing planter. It's almost like a dark purple in colour, but the depth of flavour was incredible. So, again, I asked Melissa if she could grow that this that's year for me.
2: like a two-year process. So yeah. So that's, that's one example of one ingredient and every ingredient is yeah. has a different timeline. Yeah,
1: line. yeah. And so that hasn't hit the menu yet because Plus has finished growing it. She's still got more in the ground. We've dried some of it, and I'm saving it because I think that when you make a dish, it's going to be a, um, a slightly heavier dish. It's going to be a winter-based dish. It's going to be a planter that I don't know exactly what's going to go with it yet, but it's scheduled. I've even actually had a potter make a plate to go with that wow. with that corn. So. Uh, so it is a very holistic process, the, the creative process and I'm, I'm in a lucky position where I can actually st- do that sort of thing. I can work with great potters and I can work with great growers and you know, we can make something special um, and it all comes actually sometimes just from a simple idea, seeing a seed in a catalogue.
2: Does anyone have one last question?
1: Alright, two quick ones. Uh, You know how you were talking before about how California's got this really amazing subculture of organic and heirloom produce. Why do you think it's still so underdeveloped in Australia? Is it just a lack of demand? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's, um, I think population is huge. Like, you know, um, California, for example, is, I think it's like the world's fifth biggest economy, you know, by itself as a state, you know, so that's one thing. And they've been doing it for a long time as well. But I think we're catching up in Australia I think I think I think worldwide there's a much much bigger um, acknowledgement and interest in uh, organics and where your food comes from what are you eating how what's that doing to your body I think it's a worldwide movement and you know it's certainly I think Australia is actually doing pretty well it's still got a long way to go but I think I think it just started in California earlier and um, and I don't know, just... if you know, well, he's there. Yeah, and just that lifestyle, the climate, everything was right at the right time. You know, there's certain parts of America where that wouldn't exist either, you know. like So it is an interesting sort of phenomenon.
0: That was Chef Peter Gilmore with moderator Pelissa Anderson speaking at the Theatre of Ideas, part of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. You've been listening to Melbourne Food and Wine. Melbourne Food and Wine Festival is made possible with the support of Visit Victoria. I'm Pat Nurse.